You're listening to the very first season ever of the Lifestyle Company Podcast, hosted by Kristen Forgion, designer, public speaker, and creator of Organic Desert Living. If you like talking design, business, and life without the filter, you came to the right place. In just six years, Kristen grew a one-woman side hustle into a multi-million dollar creative business. And it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Armed with grit and hard work, Kristen comes to you unapologetically with some tough love. They say wine is cheaper than therapy, and lucky for you, we've got that last part covered. So pour up and let's get to it. Hi guys, I'm back. I'm back. If you are one of those uber-dedicated listeners who knows that we release a new episode every Thursday, you have been disappointed for the last four Thursdays because we, and I probably shouldn't say we, me, I, this is kind of a me thing, I haven't recorded in almost a month and it's so sad and I bet I miss you guys more than you miss me, but I and back and I had to take a little hiatus because I got so sick. And when I listen back to episode nine, um, it's just really ironic because I am in Cabo talking about how I haven't gotten sick yet, or hopefully not at all. And two days after I got home from Cabo, I actually had a parasite. Yep. A real parasite. And a parasite is not just like really bad diarrhea, you guys. It is, you have to be tested for it. it. The culture has to grow. They have to call you and scare the living shit out of you and tell you that you have a parasite. You're not gonna die, but you have a parasite and you have to buy all this really crazy medicine. And it was an experience. It was definitely the sickest I have ever been in 35 years. Um, my mom kept saying every single day, should I, should I get on a plane? Should I get on a plane? Should I get on a plane? And I kept telling her like, mom, you're in Michigan. By the time you fly out here, hopefully I'll be better. Seven days go by. I'm not better. Um, it was insane. And I think the podcast took the biggest hit in falling behind because I wasn't working for a week and then trying to catch back up. And podcasting is kind of one of those things where you really got to get into a rhythm. You got to get into a groove because it gets so much easier when you're in that groove. And then when you stop for a little while, you kind of forget the sound of your own voice and you some of those insecurities that you had in the beginning kind of come back. And so because I haven't recorded for a month, I was probably ready to start recording again maybe two weeks after I was sick. And then it took me another two weeks to kind of get the balls, if you will, to re, you know, kind of evaluate the content and make sure that the episodes were still, the remaining episodes at least, were still what I wanted to talk about, especially after being sick. And you know how it is, like being sick is weird and it changes things for you. And you have way too much time alone, sick time, sick brain time to think. And that gets weird. And the whole thing is just weird. So I'm back. We have episode 10, 11, and 12 to go in season one. I've gotten so many messages from people asking me. I, I listened all the way through episode nine. Are there other episodes that I can't find or that I can't see? Is my iTunes broken? I tried um, Spotify. So no, you have not missed any episodes. We are still chugging along. We just took that little break. We I, I just took that little break because... I needed to. And the podcast is really important to me. And like I said, I think it's just, you just have to be in the right place to make it really worthwhile and make it sound good and make it work for you guys the way I have always intended it to. Moving right into episode 10. This episode 
was going to be about boundaries in business and in evaluating. I always look back at my messages, and as I've told you guys before, I answer every single DM myself. And as I was looking back at my messages and I flagged some that you know I want to revisit later, I have gotten so many messages over the life of this podcast asking about alternative streams of revenue and how I built this business to have multiple streams of revenue and when I knew it was the right time to open the shop and when I knew it was the right time to hire another designer. And, you know, we all know the answer to those questions is you kind of don't know the right time. You just have to evaluate and hopefully make educated assumptions and go from there. But so in thinking about all of those messages, I felt like doing an episode on building revenue streams was in order. So episode 10, this episode will be about that. And before we jump into specifics on it, where am I? If you are listening straight through from episode nine, I was on the beach, which is where I got the parasite. So there's that. Um, You guys, I'll never get over it. I swear to God, I will talk about it for the rest of my life. If there's anything at any point, I'm always like, wash your hands. Mommy got a parasite. Wash your hands. Barb got a parasite. Wash your hands. Well, just wash your hands and then wash them again. I'll never get over it. Okay. So I'm no longer on the beach. I am back in our recording studio, which I love. And I'm actually in a new booth today and it's got some vintage rugs on the wall and I'm feeling like this is my jam. It's got a little bit of red lighting, which I'm not loving. Also a green bulb over there. But it's pretty good. So I'm back in the booth and recording on site on the beach with Vince. You know, well, we weren't on the beach, but we were in our hotel that overlooked the beach, which was absolutely unbelievable, was so cool. And I felt so just lucky and blessed to be able to record that episode there with him. And then the reception from you guys was awesome. So that was really exciting. But I'm back. So what am I wearing? Summer dress, you guys, is in full effect, which aka means at least twice a week, someone from our company texts like casual Tuesday, question mark. (laughs) And we're all like, yes, yes, yes. And while we have to keep our dress very much together and we have a strict, it's not strict, but we have a look, a lookbook that we go by for our dress code, if you will. It's a vibe, right? It's Organic Desert Living. It's a vibe. It's our brand. We oftentimes are like, hey, we need to cram. I don't want to spend 45 minutes getting ready and then having all of my makeup melt off my face before I even get to work because you guys, it is so hot. Oh my God. I'm in Arizona, in case you didn't know, and it's hot as hell here. And while we've been lucky this year and we didn't even have our first 100 degree day, I want to say to like mid-June, it is so hot now. And the weather is taking no prisoners. And there's fires, like fire. The wildfires in the summer are so bad. So that's been bad. So I'm wearing a shitload of the Lifestyle Company stuff. And the reason why is because we have just such cute day dresses and light airy materials, stuff that you can sweat in and not look like a slob. So summer dress, top knot in full effect from here on out. And I was just thinking about cutting my hair and I don't know what the hell is wrong with me because you defs cannot cut your hair in the summer if you live in Arizona because you just have to have it up every minute of every day. What I'm eating. I have not been able to get my meal planning ass like back on since I got sick. And I don't know if that's because I got so sick. And by the way, for the record, for all of you who are messaging me like, oh my God, Barb, I hope you feel better, but you're going to be so skinny when you're done with this parasite because everyone loses weight if they get a parasite, right? No, I did not lose a pound. I didn't eat for five days. I did not eat 
for five days and I didn't lose a pound. Like who doesn't lose a pound? Doesn't that seem a little cruel? Like, okay, I got the parasite, but the least you could have done for me was like, get rid of those last three pounds that, you know, are just hanging around, always have been, always will be. No, didn't lose a pound. So obviously my appetite was really, really wacky after the parasite. And because of that, I just haven't really been able to get back on meal planning. So, and we've been traveling a little bit and we're at the cabin later this week and next week and it's July 4th and I don't know. So I've kind of been in this weird place, but I need to get back on meal planning. You guys know I love Trader Joe's. I did add a highlight to my profile at Kristen Forgione that is called I Cook and it's all of the super easy like whip up type of stuff that I cook all the time. It's dinner, there's some breakfast, you know, items, there's appetizers. So it's I Cook and you can find that on the highlights, which I had some the other day. So I'm so sorry to be this asshole to ask you this, but what are highlights? <laughs> some profiles have them, some don't, but it's the little round bubbles that are just below like the bio and kind of like your profile blurb where it says like, you know, your website or email or whatever you have. And then there will be little, little circles. So mine are kind of like a nude color. And like I said, mine says I cook. And then there's like my house, links, makeup, some other, some other kind of stuff. So since I decided to switch my handle from at Lifestyled Co to at Kristen Forgione, and you can still type in Lifestyled Co and it comes up and give the brand to our brand page, which is now at the Lifestyle Co. It was a little bit of a bumpy ride. And I don't know that it's enough to dedicate a whole episode to, but I lost like 350 followers. And it was like a good bleeding for like a month. Like it was a good month that that I was bleeding. And I don't know if that's because people didn't know who Kristen Forgione was or they didn't like maybe the new content I was talking about, but it's not like I've changed the content. Like my profile is still where you're going to see all the design and where, you know, I don't know. It's just been been really interesting. But the other thing that's been interesting is since I've changed my handle over to Kristen Forgione, my influencer requests have grown exponentially. Like we're getting so many more requests for partnerships and collabs and all that jazz, public speaking, um, so many more than when Lifestyle Co. was our brand page. So just kind of interesting stuff that I thought I'd, I'd throw out there. What am I reading? You know what? I'm reading nothing. I am lucky to be alive. I'm reading emails because I'm like 500 emails behind and it used to keep me up at night and now I'm of the mindset that is like, listen, if anybody needs me, they, they know how to get a hold of me if it's an emergency. And if it's not, then your email will sit there and I will be able to get back to you someday. Yeah. It's one of those things that I would really love to figure out how to get through faster. Recent face palm. Um, well, I was verbally assaulted by a client yesterday. Does that count? <laughs> and no, I'm not kidding. <sighs> Um, yeah, I cannot get into details, but that, that was, you could, you could file that one under all the bad shit in business because it was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. So that's gonna be my face palm being verbally assaulted by a client on the radar. We just wrapped our 75th build and it was a total dream, total dream during the design open. So, and after we do a spec build, which by the way, lots of people have asked me, is the house for sale? Does it have an owner? Is it a custom home? Do you own it? 
so many questions about this elusive spec build term. So in our world, a spec build is a house that is being built that is going to be for sale, that is being built with the intention of selling it. In a lot of instances, these spec builds will be purchased midway, you know, mid mid build, if you will. And then it almost switches to a custom home because then there's a client that's involved. So a custom home is when you're building a house for a client or for someone who owns it. I do not own 75th. Boy, oh boy, do I wish I I did. (laughs) But our build partners, our favorite guys to work with, ENS builders, they are actually the, the developers on this project. So they built it, they developed it, they bought the land, they own it all, and they are selling it. So that is how a spec build works. So we just wrapped the project and after all of our spec builds, we do what we call a design open. And I love the concept because Frankly, I never had really heard of an opportunity to be able to go to a house that there was no pressure to buy and talk to the designers and not necessarily be looking at it from only a real estate perspective, but also being able to enjoy the design and be able to get ideas and be able to meet the people who are responsible for doing it and putting it together and not feel weird and awkward. Like there are still times that I'll drive around and I'm a qualified eye. Like frankly, I should be able to walk into an open house and and not feel weird, right? Like I'm... I'm definitely, I definitely have the influence, if you will, and the client base to see a great project and, and want to talk about it. But there's still times where like, I'll feel awkward and that's not intentional, I don't think, but it just, it just is what it is. And I don't know if you've ever walked into a model home that like, you know, you can't afford and it feels weird and they kind of ask you weird questions and like, you're like, I just want to see the decor. Like, does, isn't that what 95% of people go to a model home for? Some are buying, some are looking at the decor. So we created this concept of the design open and it is, it's just fun. And it, it kind of has become an, an event where we encourage people to talk to each other, no matter whether you have one follower or 1000 or 10,000 or a hundred thousand or whatever, like anyone who's available, come look at the design, take pictures, ask us questions, meet us, get to know us. We always throw a beautiful spread. And this time our director of ops, Amy, she was able to head up this humongous charcuterie island. We literally turned this 14 foot island into a huge charcuterie board. That was amazing. There was rosé flowing. It was beautiful weather. There were 250 people there. It was just awesome. So that is 100% on the radar. Every single bill we do is amazing. And I feel so lucky to get to do those. This one was just so special. So special. Absolute death in the moment. I mean, also 75th. Like, you guys, there are so many nooks and crannies and corners and ceilings and moments. Just absolute death in that house. And if you haven't seen the video um, home tour, I put a home tour on IGTV, which if you're new to IGTV, don't worry. It's definitely still a new thing people are catching on to. There's a little icon that looks like a TV with antennas on profiles. It's on mine. Sometimes it's in different places for different people. But if you click that that little icon, it will show you part one and part two of the walking tour that I did through the 75th build. And then there's, of course, behind the scenes and all that stuff on stories. And I will make another highlight for all of the content that we've taken of 75th so far. Definitely the most absolute death of the moment right now. Episode 10, building revenue streams. Why is building revenue streams and really building alternate or alternative streams of revenue so important to a small business? 
And remember, this is only my opinion. These are my thoughts based on my experience as a business owner of six plus years um, in what started as a one woman show that I never imagined would ever, 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 ever be what it is today slash with a little bit of planning and manifesting, hoped it would. Um, Why is it so important? For me, I feel like the alternate streams of revenue that I was able to set up early on that have now totally morphed and changed into, into different revenue streams is what allowed me flexibility in being able to select the direction that I wanted my business to go. That was a long answer but I'm incapable of giving short answers, if that makes sense to anybody. So your main function of your business, a lot of creatives listen to this podcast. So I'm always, I am always kind of kind of struggling with who I'm talking to. Am I talking to designers? Am I talking to creatives? And and creatives is a term like photographers, um, anyone in small business, business branding, business marketing, uh, cake decorators, um, even real estate agents. I've seen real estate kind of shifting in, in a little bit of, even a creative way. Um, other other designers, as I mentioned, interior stylists, there's just so many different iterations of what a creative business can be. So I'm, for the most part, speaking about creative business. But I also think that if you have, let's call it more of a, I always use accounting as an example. If you own an accounting firm, I still think that it's important to have additional streams of revenue so that you're not just putting all of your eggs in one basket. So Whatever your main function of your business is, for me and for the Lifestyled Company, it is interior design. Our main function, and that is both by brand, by marketing, and by numbers, a majority of our revenue comes from design, which for us is full service interiors, renovation, and new build. And then we have the brick and mortar shop, our online shop, our Airbnb, And for a while, we did flips and investment properties. I don't know that flips and investment properties will ever come back, but I certainly hope development will and and will be happening in the future. Vince and I would love to develop our own properties just like we're doing with the 75th build and with our friends at ENS. I hope at some point we are those developers, but that's a huge undertaking and something that I don't want to focus on right now. So the business over time has really morphed into a very streamlined level of revenue. But it took a really long time, you guys. Let's go back. So when the Lifestyle Company started, it started as a blog. And as you know, I called it the Lifestyled Company because I wanted to style all aspects of your life, which when I started blogging, I was blogging about home decor, renovation. Um, I didn't, I had a new, new, baby. So I wasn't really talking about kid shit yet, but um, fashion, because I've always loved fashion, food, local stuff. Like it was kind of just all of my favorite things in a blog. And the blog started with the intention of gaining clients. So I was primarily talking about owning our house and the decorating and the renovating that we were doing for ourselves because we had no clients, obviously. With the blog, right around that same time, I started an Etsy shop because I designed a pregnancy announcement for my sister-in-law and she loved it and it looked really great. And I'd shown a couple people and they were like, oh my gosh, like this is so cool. You should do this. And I was just doing it at night. So I was working my full-time job as a wedding and event designer for a high-end hotel. I was blogging 
with the Lifestyle Company, my new blog that meant nothing that no one read but my mom. And I was working files and creating files on Etsy. And the Etsy shop, kind of just like the blog, was kind of a total accident. Like I said, I put the pregnancy announcement, which is so ironic. The very first listing I ever made was a pregnancy announcement, like I said, for my sister-in-law. And to this day, or to the day that we closed the shop, it was still our number one listing. And I don't know if that was because it had so many years of, of clicks for, you know, ever, or if it was it was just still so popular. It was still our number one listing, the number one selling digital file that we had. And while the Etsy shop grew and changed, I designed wedding invitations and wedding seating charts, and we customized them. And I would kind of slowly experiment with adding additional items to sell either a printable or all personalized items. Like for a little bit, I did a collection of baby blankets called Elko Littles, and they were personalized with the kid's name and their birth stats. And it was such a cute, cute idea and a really great little product. But my seamstress like up and moved and I didn't have anyone else. And I didn't have the kind of connections that I have now to where I could probably put a call out on Instagram and say, hey, I need a seamstress and keep on going. It just wasn't like that then. So Elko Littles like was short lived and cute and sweet. But you know, I don't know that I ever actually made much from that. Then clients started happening, but the Etsy shop was still happening. So for years, I kept the Etsy shop going. I was working files in the morning. So I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning, working files for two hours, getting ready, getting Harper ready, getting everybody out of the house, going to work until six o'clock, leaving work, going to get Harper from daycare, going home, doing bed bath, all that stuff, and then getting back on the computer, blogging, trying to create content, trying to take photos at night. Like, I don't know if any of you guys are like the night people out there trying to do the hustle right now, but trying to take decent quality photos at night is like impossible. Like it's so pointless and dumb. Don't even try it. It was horrible. And then I was working on files. So I was, I mean, it was insane. And I did it for a really long time. But I'm going to tell you guys a little bit here about Etsy. I pulled the numbers from Etsy in 2013, which I started the blog in 2013. My Etsy shop made $3,100 and I had 218 orders. In 2014, I had 1,050 orders and it made $16,000. So I don't know if you remember way back in episode one, but I talked about how Vince and I saved $20,000 to start the lifestyle company, really to survive on. But I also started the lifestyle company at the same time, and I was just hoping I could make $20,000. And if I saved 20 and I made 20, I'd make 40. And that was an okay number at that time for now. So Etsy shop 2014, 1,050 orders and $16.4,000 in revenue. In 2015, it had 1,034 orders and $21,000 in revenue. So this little Etsy shop was making $21,000 a year. Like that's a lot of money for a small business. And again, this was my alternate stream of revenue. So my main stream of revenue in 2015, I had already been in business for two years. I was taking clients. I was doing weddings. I was I was styling anything and everything I could get my hands on. But the lifestyle company was going. I had already quit my full-time job. I quit my full-time job in 2013, actually in June. So I was already on my own, if you will, for a year and a half. And keeping Etsy going allowed me 
kind of that safe zone, I guess. Like it almost became my corporate job. As funny as that sounds, it all, it just became that thing that I knew that as long as I could work files and I could get these people their kids invitation, I could at least have some money coming in. So I mean, I cannot explain how instrumental keeping Etsy on the side going was for me. Now, I'm not saying that you should start an Etsy shop right now, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Then in 2016, we had 773 orders and made another $20.1,000 in revenue. So that's kind of funny. So 300 less orders, but the same exact amount of revenue as 2015 both 21,000. So that's interesting. Either we added a lot more higher priced items, which would really kind of be the only way that that would happen because the order, the number of orders was down, but the revenue was the same. So yeah, we must have added some, some additional higher priced items or people were buying multiples in an order or, or something like that. And in 2016 was when I hired an Etsy manager. I hired an Etsy manager at an hourly rate and my mom also helped out. And so those two ran the Etsy shop. There was no way that I was gonna be able to continue doing that. So they ran the Etsy shop at an hourly rate, which left me maybe half the revenue. But again, in 2016, it was making 20 grand, getting 10,000 of that 20 for virtually not doing any work because I had created all the listings all those years before was a great deal. I was kind of like, hey, I'm happy. Like these two are happy just with their little side gig for coffee money. And I'm happy because that $10,000 is 100% paying my rent at my new office. And, you know, so it, it just, it provided so much flexibility. And I think more than anything, peace of mind. And so 2016, 20,000. And then in 2017, I really felt like things changed a lot in in the Etsy world, we only did $11,000 in revenue and had 400 orders. So you can definitely see there was a peak in 15 and 16. That's when we were working at the hardest. But in those five years that we had it, it means $73,000. $73,000. That's a lot of money that allowed me to have, I want to say, the confidence to take some risks and and pick and choose some things for my main function. That's truly why I believe that alternate streams of revenue are so important. And they're never, and they shouldn't ever compete with your main function. And they shouldn't also ever get in the way of your main function. And I think because Etsy was so perfectly timed for me is why it made so much sense. So the reason why I don't necessarily suggest starting an Etsy shop now is because that whole landscape has changed. In 2013, Etsy was still like kind of new and the whole idea of printables was kind of new. And I could sit behind my computer and make some files and just change out the name and send it along as a PDF and help people understand how to print. And like that whole thing was new. And Etsy didn't even have sponsored listings when I started or, or promoted listings. So it was all organic. Facebook wasn't was still organic chronological. So was Instagram. Like, I don't, I don't even know if Instagram was around yet. But so everything was different now. And I think we saw some of that in 2017 when the revenue started to drop. Now you have to pay to play. So if you want any sort of visibility on Etsy, you have to invest in ads. And that's a big number. And, and it's a lot. And there are just so many. If you Google pregnancy announcement on Etsy, I would venture to guess there's 400,000 listings. And that's just a, a blind guess, but it, it's a lot. So trying to get noticed and trying to get on that first or second or even 10th page, 
is just a completely different animal than it is now. And it is very time consuming. The same amount of time is still required to make a great experience for a customer and be creative and make a file that can compete with some of the other really great shops. And it just wasn't like that when it was coming up for me. So maybe Etsy isn't the vehicle now to have an alternate stream of revenue, but it definitely was for me. And in creating more personalized items and trying to keep kind of the landscape changing of how the Etsy shop could derive additional revenue for me, I had a really horrible idea that I would start selling mugs, coffee mugs, and t-shirts with some of the things that I say on them that people love. So this was before death, even though I was saying death, but I hadn't like realized that it would catch on like it it did. So I had a shirt that said, um, like you had me at Subway Tile. I had a shirt that said Shiplap all over it. Way before, way before Joanna Gaines and Demo Day and all of her everything took over. Like, I shit you guys not, it was before Magnolia, which clearly doesn't matter because we see who cornered that market. <laughs> like, Joanna Gaines for president, like, all the way. Um, but it bombed, you guys. I ordered way too many shirts, way, way, way too many mugs. We were, at one point, giving them away. We couldn't give them away. Like, we still had them when we opened the shop. We still had them a year after we opened the shop. And we were like, yay, spend $2, get a free mug. And people were like you keep the mug. Like it was, it bombed. It bombed. So for all those people, I do get people every once in a while that were like, how have you had such a flawless business experience? I'm like, you have obviously not listened to the podcast. Um, And number two, I haven't. That's nuts. Number three, hold on. Like, let me quickly list like the epic failures that have occurred in the last six years. Those fucking mugs and shirts. Anyone that works in my company now or or has is 100% laughing out loud because it's like a complete joke in our world. It really is. So Etsy's going. I have this horrible idea for shirts and mugs. And I think my total investment was like $3,000. And I think I've told you guys before, I do really good with small numbers. Like I like to dip my toe in, dip my toe in, see how it goes, make changes, put in a little more, make more changes. Like I'm not good with like, bam, like I need 50 grand. I'm not good with those types of investments. I'm way better with with small numbers, which is proving to be a challenge because now we play in a world where like we kind of have some big numbers and we kind of have some new things coming that are requiring a lot more money than it did when it was just me. And so that's something I'm, I'm getting used to. But so Etsy's still going. I'm still doing weddings, which really as I've talked about, almost killed me. And when I realized that weddings were not going to continue and I had to get out of them, that was a huge portion of of revenue. Uh, Again, a huge portion. And I either had to make that up in design clients or with something else. And as I just mentioned, I want to remind you guys, you, you can't be an expert in a million things. And a really quick way to let your entire network know, whether it's five people or 5,000 people, that you're all over the place is to be all over the place. So if one day you're selling me essential oils, the next day you're selling me makeup, the day after that you're wanting me to book a family session with you, the day after that you are um, selling me isogenics, the day after that you're back to photography, then you're starting your new business, styling homes. Then you get your real estate license so you can have some some freedom. And I'm not, I don't, I hope that doesn't fit anyone out there. <laughs> but 
You have to, if you're trying to build a profitable business as an entrepreneur, whether or not you want it to be just you or you want to grow into something larger, you have to try to pick a direction, at least a theme. The theme for me has always been design. So whether I was designing printables or whether I was designing horrible, horrible, horrible coffee mugs and t-shirts or whether I was designing homes or weddings or wardrobes or whatever, I was designing something. For me, I don't know how isogenics and makeup and oils and photography and real estate go together. I'm sorry, I don't. So I think it's just you you kind of you have to pick and choose because the more you dumb down your experiments, the more dumb and kind of lost you're going to look. And it, and I'm not saying that you, you know, as a stay-at-home mom shouldn't like try things that you can kind of experiment with for lack of a better term. You totally should. Just realize that your business by choice, I think for most people is being a stay-at-home mom. And your choice is also to introduce these other businesses that will help you to pass the time or to make some, like I said, coffee money or, you know, makeup money or whatever. So I think you just, you have to be really clear with who you are and where you're going and what you want for the next few years. Obviously, you're not going to be a stay-at-home mom forever. Like kids grow up really fast. So try to decide where you want to be. And one thing that we haven't talked about at all is being an influencer. Being an influencer the right way takes years and years and years of work. I have literally posted on Instagram every day of my life for the last six years and responded to every message I've ever gotten. And that is hard. Like it it's hard and I've I've never taken a social media detox and I've never like decided I can't be on social anymore and deleted my account and blah blah blah, which is probably why it was such a huge challenge for me to change my name because I felt like I was like, "Oh my god, are people going to think that I'm like, you know, having an identity crisis here because I'm not and I'm totally happy with who I am and where this company is going and and blah blah blah." So where am I? <laughs> I'm just kidding, you guys. I just want to see if you were listening. So we're back to, I have the lifestyle company. We're taking clients. We have decided we, I have decided I'm not doing weddings anymore. I still have the Etsy shop going. Insert house flipping. I've talked about house flipping before on this podcast and it is really hard. (laughs) House flipping as a designer is even harder, I personally think, because there are just some like standards that I cannot ignore And that's challenging when you're flipping a house and every single choice you make is eating into your profit very hard. So house flipping was envisioned to be an additional stream of revenue so that we could let weddings go, I could let weddings go, and Vince and I could have a side project. He was also doing it on the side. He didn't work for the lifestyle company yet. He was still in his corporate job. And he was still in his corporate job until last August. So we're talking 2015 right now we start house flipping on the side we do like four to five projects um over the course of a couple years and they were good ish you know like we made between 10 and 20,000 one we made almost 30 and then we got sued that was awesome um which makes it all basically we made nothing now at this point but and hopefully that doesn't ever happen to you but we were making good money. By the time you take taxes out of that, maybe not good money, we we're making some money, right? It was it was worth it for both of us, I think, because we gained so much knowledge. It definitely 
definitely helped me understand way more about building and requirements and trades and how to manage subcontractors. And it, it taught me a lot. And when you're doing it for yourself, it allows you that grace to kind of mess up and be like, oh, shit, I meant like, you know, and then you're not doing that at the expense of a client. So house flipping was a couple years, then the market kind of shifted a little bit. And right now it's so competitive and so fierce that inventory that is kind of shitty is going for top dollar and inventory that's really nice is going for top dollar. And when that happens, there isn't very much room for house flippers. So between the occasional house flip project, I had always wanted to get into retail and known that I wanted to open a boutique of some kind, but it's a huge undertaking. And I I frankly did not have the foundation or the infrastructure or any balance with my projects. I have at that time specifically was like running around like a crazy person, balls to the wall. I don't think I saw my friends for two years. Like it was insane. Oh, throw a baby in there too. I got pregnant, had a baby, that's Sutter. And so I'm two kids running this business full time. By 2015, I had one employee, I had an office manager and she was a godsend and amazing and definitely helped me transition things to have a little bit more normalcy so that I could focus on designing more. But at that time, you're, you know, you're ramping up, you're building your fee structure, you're trying to finish projects to the best of your ability, you're trying to screen clients that only want to work with you so that you get the best projects. The clients that want to work with you and, and, enjoy who you are and the fruits of your labor are the best projects always. And hopefully those projects have a budget and and they're reasonable and you become friends forever. And I have been so blessed to have so many of those. So while all that was happening, I go to market and realize that there are just so many amazing items that I know my network of people would absolutely love. So I start looking for space. And when my mom, my mom came with me to my first market, we drove home. I missed the turn and we ended up driving to Flagstaff instead of down (laughs) to Phoenix. Actually, I think we ended up driving to like Williams and then having to go through Flagstaff. It was so bad. But so we missed the turn because her and I were talking and she was on my computer making a spreadsheet and we were trying to do some like uh, a performa projection basically so that we could try to figure out what it would actually cost to run a retail shop and it was like so much money you guys it was I I couldn't even fathom the amount of money that that it was at that time but I knew that I really wanted to test it and I really wanted to see what that would be like and if if I even liked it before I signed a three or five year lease so we came up with this concept of a pop-up shop and the pop-up shop was April of let's see 19. 18, 17, 16. I want to say it was April of 2016, I think, if I remember correctly. And I found this really cute little spot. And I just approached the landlord and was like, hey, I really want to do a pop-up shop. Can I rent the space for a month? Or I may, I may have even said two weeks. And I think he said, like, the ownership would be interested in a month if you want to do that. And I remember it was $3,000 for the month. And I just thought that that was, like, so, so much money. And it is. I mean, $3,000 for a space is a lot of money. But so it was $3,000 for the month and we released the dates for the pop-up shop and we popped up basically for a week. And in classic Kristen Barbara fashion, I couldn't half-ass it. So I invested so much money in signage and staffing and labor. And I also don't think I had really pulled off an install at that scale yet. 
So like we installed 1,500 square feet of furniture and 1,500 square feet of furniture in a house is way different than 1,500 square feet of furniture in a retail location um, in like two days. Like we literally built a store and a complete retail experience in two days. And we popped up and it was a huge success and it was balls to the wall busy from literally the second we opened. We had a big party. It was awesome. I had so much fun. Um, I remember that being like the first like real pinch me moment. Like, okay, I've got people out there that like want what I do and they want my eye and they want my aesthetic. And this was before Organic Desert Living came before we called it something and and I felt confident enough to call our style something different than what everyone else was calling it and really given an identity. And that was like, I cried that night. It was so amazing. All my family were there. All my friends were there. We had clients there. We have, we, we had people come that are still in our lives. Like Mary, Mary Maisel, one of our shop babes, she came to the pop-up shop. And the second I met her, I was like, I will be in your life for the, forever. Like she's amazing. Um, and now she works for us. So it, there, it has provided so many options and so much insight. And one of the things that I think it did most is it allowed me to get a taste of retail after that week. And we made money. Like, I think I probably walked away with maybe $15,000 in profit in a week, which was huge. And it was great. But I totally knew that I could not do it to that level all the time. Like I was exhausted. My design clients were so kind at the time to totally let me abandon them for that week. I didn't, I don't think I returned a single email. I worked the pop-up shop. I was on social like a crazy maniac wild woman. I don't even know if I had 10,000 followers at that point, but I was working all 10,000. Um, we were, you know, opening the, sh- the pop-up shop, closing the pop-up shop, trying to restock, trying to make sure that everything we had was priced, trying to get good content. Like it was just a shit show. And so after that, I was like, I can't do this. Like, there's just no way. I'm so glad it was so fun, but I can't do it. So I kind of thought that that would be the end of it. Like, I kind of just never really thought that it would, that we would ever go back into that world. But as time passed and as more people just started asking for more of the pieces that we were using in design, I came up with the shop that we have today, the brick and mortar, and that's in our studio in downtown Gilbert. And one thing I have never wavered on is ever putting furniture in our brick and mortar. Furniture is the devil, you guys. It is my best friend and my biggest enemy. Like it's a hundred percent what I do all day, every day, but it is such a bitch and it has so much baggage and bagage as we call it. And it comes damaged all the time and it's just expensive. And when it gets messed up, it's expensive and someone has to pay for it. And it's always us. And you know, it's, it's just one of those things that like you to make money in furniture, you have to sell so much of it and you have to have such an and infrastructure and really dedicated reps and manufacturers that want to work with you and help you when things get damaged. And so I was like, listen, I'm totally into a retail shop, but I don't want to sell furniture. And I don't want to do it every day. That was the other thing. It's like, I still have a full-time job. So I've always kind of looked at our additional streams of revenue as like, I hate the word hustle, but kind of as a hustle, kind of as like the side hustle. Like this is like just, this is icing on the cake revenue. I still have to focus on like my real revenue, which is my real function, which is design. So I can't do this every day. So that's why we opened the shop really Friday and Saturday only in the beginning is because we had to work out of that office Monday through Friday or Thursday. And I could take a little bit of time on Fridays and Saturdays to be there and make the shop go. So that that's really why it was open 
only Friday and Saturday. Now it's open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we might be this fall expanding hours even more than that. And so it, it, the shop really changed things for us. And as we opened the shop, that has changed too. Like when I look at the first inventory and merchandising set that we had, like it's so different than it is now. It's so much more streamlined now. It's so much more brand identifiable and specific. And then we um, also introduced clothing, shoes, and accessories. And that was another huge pivot and a huge change and absolutely changed things for the better and has contributed to so much additional revenue. And all of those little pivots and changes were all trying to build additional streams of revenue so we could have choices. Oh, and we forgot about one really specific part of the shop, launching online. That's a whole nother beast. I think when you generally think about it, I think the lifestyle company shop is thought of as, you know, of course, we have an online shop and we have a brick and mortar, but the online shop is literally, it's a completely separate business. It has completely different requirements. It has completely different inventory. It is a whole nother undertaking and something that I think generally because we are so online shopping dependent, we just don't think about it. We're like, oh, of course they're online. Everything's online. I can I can get anything online in two seconds. And it takes a lot of manpower to be able to have that service. So we really couldn't make online go well until Vince joined the company and that was why so that he could manage all that and he has done it and done an absolutely beautiful job so that's kind of a quick very quick look into all of the different kind of arms and actually geez I haven't talked about our Airbnb and what that's been like which maybe I will squeeze in a little bit about Airbnb let me know if you guys feel like that would be good uh, in the DMs on Instagram if you really want to hear about our experience as an Airbnb vacation homeowning um, owner, if you will, because it 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 is also another beast. It's just a totally different, different situation. So um, and then the podcast, like we've launched the podcast and the podcast is making absolutely no money. It is not monetized in any way. I'm not being paid a dime to do this and I'm okay with it. So there's also like that, those kind of um, feel good streams of revenue that maybe you dedicate some time to. And for some people, maybe it's philanthropy for me right here, right now. It's the podcast. But I feel like if you are out there starting a new business or you've been doing your business and you're still kind of putting all of your eggs into one basket, try to figure out how you can spread out just a little bit and not spread yourself too thin because it has to kind of fit within what else you're doing, but spread just a little bit so that you can further your brand, further your impact that your brand can can make for you, give you an additional something to talk about from a marketing standpoint. And even if it's just a partnership, maybe instead of starting a side hustle, as the folk like to call it, maybe it's just a partnership with another something. It's another company. You do a collaboration with a candle company so that you have a little stake in a private label something. Um, one of my designer friends was talking about making custom ottomans. Like she was just going to make custom ottomans and see how she could hustle those and, and sell those. I have another friend who um, has a workroom and she makes custom draperies. And that's kind of her thing while she does also does design. So 
And, and this works in a whole bunch of different markets. So for me, I believe really strongly in trying to figure out what those additional streams of revenue are. I also have like a marketing friend who she puts together marketing guides that she sells as instant downloads on her site for like 10 bucks. And I don't know, maybe she gets 10 downloads a week. That's 100 bucks a week and that's 400 bucks a month. That's probably your car payment. Like those types of setups will help you to understand how much you can manage, diversify your revenue a little bit so that if something takes a hit, you have something else. I also think that's really, really super important to put it all on your shoulders as the one woman or one man show without any additional opportunity to drive more revenue is a really slippery slope and very scary. So I think I could talk about building additional streams of revenue forever, but we're at 47 minutes and I need to cut it. So if you want to continue the conversation, of course, message me on Instagram. You know I will get right back to you or get back to you as soon as I can. I would love to help you figure out what you might do to help you build additional streams of revenue. It has really been a game changer for me and something that, like I said, has just allowed just some peace of mind and flexibility in one, knowing that it never has to compete with my, let's call it real business, but two, knowing that we are bringing in some additional revenue so that I can make some choices. And in the beginning, I also think it really just helps pay your bills. It helps you know that you're gonna be okay and you're not hanging on to every dollar so that you are forced to work with clients or take projects or whatever that you don't want. So we're gonna close the show with three questions like we always do, or I think we pretty much have for the most part, except for maybe a few episodes. This one comes from underscore expect dot o dot petronum underscore. I don't know, that's a really hard handle. But it says, is that your exclusive font for branding? Did you design it and do you own it? Really great question. We do have a script font that we use. That is what Organic Desert Living is written in. And then we use it for some subtitles and like subheadings and stuff like that. But no, it is. I did not design it. It is not exclusive to us. We tried to buy it at one point and it was like $3,000 for the font suite. And I just felt like, meh, probably not what I need to spend my money on. But we use it like it's ours. And if someone out there uses it, that's totally fine. But I would highly suggest getting your brand fonts and colors and all of that wrapped into a nice little bow. Put it on a brand page if you need to so it helps you so you know what to use what for. It becomes highly recognizable, so much so that you asked me if I own it and if I designed it. So I think that means, in my opinion, that it's working. So fonts, I'm a crazy person about fonts and spacing. So any, my mom's definitely laughing right now. Um, I just think it, it's really important. And they, fonts speak volumes. And sometimes the font is more important than the content. Or sometimes I'm so distracted by the fonts that I'm not even reading what the content is because I'm so distracted. So I could go on like a whole nother rant, but no, we don't own it. No, we didn't design it. We are going through, here's a little like inside info. We are going through a rebrand right now. So I'm really excited for you guys to see kind of the new direction of the Lifestyled Co. And maybe you'll pick up on what I'm saying there. The Lifestyled Co. We might be shortening some things. So um, anyway, that's the answer to that question. Okay, here's another just interesting question that I haven't gotten before. This is from at MZ Valentine. Why does the ceiling have to be painted flat paint? What a good question. 
ceilings have to be painted flat because normally they are imperfect, even more imperfect than walls. And because they're on top of you and they're so high up, if you paint a ceiling, some sort of paint that has a sheen to it, the light is going to reflect on it and it's going to make all of those imperfections really, really apparent. So um, if you have a wall or a ceiling that's plaster, specifically a wall, if you plaster a wall, the plaster is so smooth and fine that you actually can paint it flat because there aren't going to be imperfections like there are on, let's say, a textured wall or even a smooth wall. Um, if it's not plaster, if the material isn't actually plaster, then there will still be imperfections and you really don't want to paint a wall completely flat. But always the ceiling flat just because you don't need to attract any any attention to it and you don't want the light reflecting off of it showing all of those imperfections because of the angle that you're viewing it at, which is normally on the ground. Okay, last question for now is from at chelsea.redding. Small ads to the home that have a big impact on design. Ball in on a budget. I love that. So small ads, the best changes you can make in your home that can be cost effective. They can also be insanely expensive, but that can be cost effective is lighting for sure. I mean, other than the obvious answer, which, which is paint. If you have a home that is all over the place or you have some architectural challenges or you have dated finishes, for the love of God, just paint your walls white, please. I get questions all the time with people from people that have dated floor plans, that have dated finishes, and they want to like do a paint scheme that has six different colors in all shades of gray very hard to make work. Very, very hard. White walls will help neutralize like everything. It is a designer's best not kept secret. And I know that there are some people out there that are like, oh my gosh, I can't have my walls white. It looks so sterile. I don't know who started that or why. I assume from hospitals that have white walls. But our hospitals in Arizona do not have white walls. They are like the color of baby poop, which I don't find ironic. I think they do that on purpose. So you can't see the bodily fluid, but um, paint your walls white for sure. That helps. And then lighting. There are some amazing lighting choices, you guys, on Amazon, on Pinterest. There are design bloggers out there that spend their days, nights, weeks, months, and years finding insanely great deals that they share with you like every single day. Find those people. Um, the big box stores, Target also usually has a couple like great lighting fixtures. Target.com actually is even better. So for a lot of impact for a little bit of money, paint, definitely lighting, select lighting fixtures that are the right size. So just because you need to not spend a lot of money doesn't mean that you can't have the right size. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer, but if you think it's too small, it is. And if you think it's too big, go bigger. I should just end this podcast right there on that. I mean, those might be my best words ever when it comes to lighting. <laughs> if you think it's too small, it is. And if you think it's too big, go bigger. Okay, I'm really, I'm gonna end on that, you guys. So I will see you on episode 11. There will not be a hiatus this time. I cannot wait to keep this little ditty going for at least two more episodes before we round out season one and figure out if we do a season two. You guys, do we do a season two? You gotta let me know. See you later.